Welcome to season two of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, brought to you by The Bold Italic. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. Have you ever had anything stolen from your car or your porch or anything? Uh, I've actually been very fortunate in that area. Um, One Amazon box disappeared and returned. Yeah, that could have just been a bad delivery, right? Uh, Yeah, it it could have been, definitely. I think the Bay Area is fascinating right now because there's almost just an acceptance of the fact that there's going to be some stuff that happens to you that's not cool, like you get things stolen from your porch. Yet, there's still this cultural undertone of, it's okay. We're doing good stuff. Things here are important and it's interesting and it's going to impact the world in a positive way. And, you know, in keeping with the theme of where we had Antonio Garcia Martinez, who's a former Facebook product manager and seems to be a bit of a pessimist. I think that might be a bit of an understatement in some ways. We have Sam Lesson. And Sam's a pretty interesting character. One, because he's been responsible for, although he's very humble about some of the biggest changes and inventions that happened at Facebook that impact our daily lives, like the timeline and newsfeed. That's right. And uh, what is, you know, very different about Sam than than Antonio is Sam is an optimist, and I really respect that. One of the interesting parts of this conversation that you're about to listen to is that Sam loves living in the Bay Area, loves San Francisco, and he's okay with some of the stuff that happens here that feels kind of crappy, like getting your stuff stolen off of your porch. Definitely. And you sense an earnest, you know, desire to to change city politics and, you know, make this place, you know, a, a place where you feel like being civically responsible. Yeah. Sam's a very cool guy. We really enjoy this conversation. We hope you do as well. To start out with, we want to hear a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up, and its relationship to the Bay Area. So, I understand that you were not born in the U.S. I wasn't. I was born in London, England, um, but I was born to two American citizens living abroad, and I have no actual recollection of it. Um, So for all intents and purposes, I grew up in northern New Jersey. A lot of northern New Jersey guests that have been on the podcast. Maybe there's like a strong correlation between there's a lot of Bergen County people running around Silicon Valley. You run into them and like, oh, yeah, I went to high school. We competed with you. Why is that? Well, first, I think there's just a lot of people in northern New Jersey. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's partially a statistics game. But look, I mean, you know, I grew up in in a town called Englewood, which is a suburb of Manhattan. Um, You know, we literally would run track practice over the George Washington Bridge into the city and back out. But yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in New York. Uh, New York is kind of an amazing culture. It's an amazing place. Um, I miss it in lots of ways. Um, I think there are lots of ways in which New York is actually a far superior city to San Francisco. But I think there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of you know intellectual energy. And it turns out that if you have a lot of intellectual energy and you're excited about how the world is changing, there aren't that many places that are the best place to hang out. You can hang out anywhere. The internet makes everything accessible. But you know this is one of the few meccas of the world, I would argue. Did you know as a kid growing up in northern New Jersey that you wanted to be in the Bay Area? Was that ever a thing that crossed your mind? You know, A little bit. I had an uncle who lived in San Francisco, and I had very fond memories of San Francisco as a little kid. We'd come out here multiple times a year. I actually had both of my arms pulled out of their sockets by my father and my uncle uh, swinging at a a playground. It doesn't uh, sound like a fond— It's actually one of my earliest memories is in San Francisco. Um, And and it was that because it was so painful. Um, I also have, like, very fond early childhood memories of, you know— these cement slides and putting sand on the cement slides and then sliding down on cardboard, which I guess is what you did in the early 80s. And so I had fond memories of San Francisco. But actually, I would argue, I didn't 
fetishize San Francisco and being here quite as much as I think some of my peers did um, who came out here. I loved New York. Uh, I thought New York was amazing and dynamic. And there was a lot of interesting tech stuff going on in New York from my perspective. So I ended up out here because so many of my friends ended up out here and there was so much energy and there was an amazing opportunity to sell my company and move out here and work on what I think is one of the most important projects of the generation, which is Facebook. But it wasn't a, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that I would be here. So that pull energy was all about the company that you'd built, but you'd stayed out on the East Coast for all of your formative life? Pretty much. I mean, I obviously visited here a lot, but you know, I grew up in Englewood, New Jersey. I went to school in Boston. I moved back to Manhattan working for a consulting firm. I then very proud of one of the founders of Digital Dumbo. We were one of the first tech companies uh, when I started my company to go down to J Street and kind of start building out there when there was nothing there and it was pretty dangerous. I realized I probably should have just bought real estate rather than working in tech. And, you know, I really, I was an early booster of kind of the New York tech push, you know, in a lot of ways. And I was very, very pro New York. Uh, I still am. When you moved out to the Bay Area, did you say, I want to live in San Francisco because it's the closest thing that I have to New York or Manhattan in particular? Or did you say, I'm all in, I'm going down to the peninsula? No, actually, I was all in for the peninsula. I mean, actually, I had a funny story in terms of how I ended up here, which is I came out because I had sold my company to Facebook and ended up working, you know, uh, there as a product manager. um, And for context, for the users, that company was a predecessor to Dropbox. Yeah, well, I, we were slightly ahead of Dropbox. Um, yes, I would argue we launched a little before Dropbox. Dropbox did a far better job of implementing what we were going after, which was super simple file storage, uh, multi-device you know, accessibility, things like that. Yes. But yeah, I guess predecessor seems a little grandiose, but we were there. Um, <laughs> but I would say, yeah, so I moved out. And when I moved out, I, I immediately moved down to the South Bay, about a block and a half from Facebook's then headquarters, because I, w- I came out here to work. You know, Sam, one of the reasons, hearing this early mythology of, of your moving here, et cetera, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you as a guest is you were part of the early formation of tech culture, not only in New York, but some would say in this post-2008 wave of tech in the Bay Area. There was this kind of moment during the Lehman Brothers stuff, and then all of a sudden tech started to boom again. You were part of the pop culture ethos of tech. I mean, I even remember reading stories about you in Cyprus and and things like that, (laughs) you know, 10 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about what it was like being part of that early crew of, you know, tech people here kind of reigniting it? It just felt like a bunch of friends hanging out. I mean, I don't think there was any sort of sense of grandiosity to it or any sense of real deep purpose um, specifically. I just think that there were a lot of people who were really excited about a new set of ideas, a new way of doing a bunch of stuff. And frankly, we're having a lot of fun throwing on ideas when everything seemed possible. And you can talk about why, right? There's a lot of good, interesting stories you could tell about what happened after the first tech wave, what happened, you know, when, you know, there was a lot of pressure, obviously, in the financial ecosystem, coupled with, frankly, things like really cheap and accessible compute and open source software and all this stuff that kind of came together to, for a period, make the world feel really open, right? And really, and everything impossible. Do you still feel that way? Do you still feel that same sense of optimism now, 10 years later? I feel like we've gone through waves. I think this, you never feels that way forever. I think you go through waves. So for instance, look, I'm unabashed to play a stereotype. I am legitimately really excited about the blockchain world and cryptocurrency. I see in it some new echoes of new possibilities. I see a lot of junk. I see a lot of things that aren't real. But you have to put a dollar things. in the buzzword jar. That's fine. Where is it? I'll put two. <laughs> can, I, can I prepay 10? Um, <laughs> so I think these things come in waves. I mean, I think there was a moment around mobile, right? Around the iPhone that opened up. And there's a moment around, again, like 
MySQL and, you know, PHP and a bunch of things becoming more accessible at that level. Like, so I actually would argue that I did not feel that way two years ago. I think two years ago is a time when there was a lot of searching of what's next. That still is true in a lot of ways, but I do think there's glimmers of brave new worlds out there. What do you think about just generically, not good or bad, but Facebook's effect on culture? What has been the Facebook effect on culture and society? Oh man, I think that's like many, many, many podcast episodes to sort out. Look, I think most technology is double-edged sword, right? I don't think technology is like good or bad. I think it just is. And I sometimes get criticized for this, but I consider myself like a technological determinist. I very much believe that once things are possible, they're going to happen. And so I think Facebook has net done incredibly good things for the world. But man, I think it's affected culture in every possible way. I mean, how can it not, given the amount of tension that flows through it at this point? Frankly, I think crypto is going to do the same thing. I think I feel old and I watch young kids by my standards, getting extremely euphoric almost, really excited about the potential they see. And I can get there with them. But I also know, and I'm very worried about the negative repercussions that are also going to come from a thing like crypto. The effect of Facebook on culture, I mean, I literally don't even know how to unpack that without probably a book. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of being a determinist, I think, is very common in Silicon Valley. Like, I'm going to build it, and it's going to work. And like whatever happens with it is going to be a product of the fact that it exists. Uh, But that seems to be changing a little bit. The idea that software in particular can and probably should have an opinion seems to be at least growing up in some of the circles that Neil and I run around with. Do you you subscribe to that idea that technology isn't about just being there and the outcome of it is based because the technology is available, but that it actually has to have an opinion? So I think it depends on what level you're talking, right? So I'll give you an example, the blockchain. At the most fundamental level, what the blockchain is, is permanent memory. You strip it all away. You say, what does this add to society? It's basically the idea that I can say something and I can say it in a way and put it in a place that no individual organization can change it. That is so fundamental in terms of how we organize and how we think about laws and how we interact with each other and all these types of other things that you might choose as a technologist to build different things on top of it. But I think you have to keep in mind the fact that there's a fundamental new reality or a new superpower in the world, and you're not going to put that away. Again, given when we're talking and things I'm thinking about, think about some of the regulation that's just come into effect in Europe, like the right to be forgotten. The right to be forgotten juxtaposed with a new fundamental technology, which is permanent memory, is a really challenging problem, right? And so I think the reality is, is it's not that I don't think individual engineers or companies or people should take responsibility and have opinions and try to push technology on the margin in directions they believe in, but I also think there's a realism to keeping in mind what the fundamental thing we have actually is. We've talked a little bit about virtual worlds and obviously Facebook, et cetera. And we have a lot of guests who are in the technology industry, so inevitably we're going to talk about that. But talk to me about your perspective on San Francisco life and how it's changed, if it's gotten better, if it's gotten worse, and what you perceive as some of the larger issues right now just living here in the Bay Area. I'll give you my number one. It's it's kind of trite, but it's true. The traffic is just ridiculous. It's completely out of control, and it makes people, I think— not want to go out as much. I I wasn't around for this. Um, I wish I had been, but I didn't really live in San Francisco proper in what I call a pre-Uber era. But what I've heard from many of my friends who did was that San Francisco's transportation infrastructure was so fundamentally broken and you couldn't get a cab. And so basically people stayed in their neighborhoods and stayed home because it was just too hard to get around the city. 
you know, fast forward a few years, I feel like there was this great period where, frankly, ride sharing and a few other things opened up the city a lot. It made it a lot more accessible. But, you know, when I think about getting on the city now, I actually just took a bird over here. I'll put it in the tip jar. It's just stereotypes, but it's true, right? You know, it's a pretty introversible place. And I, I actually think, again, you compare San Francisco to New York. That's something that New York really has dialed. New York is, in a lot of ways, I think, a far more open, flexible environment because it's so much easier to get around. Yeah, and so what's your hot take on scooters? I'm very pro-scooter. Okay, you're pro-scooter. Very pro-scooter. Are you, are you pro-scooter? Uh, I'm not pro-scooters that have to poop all over them. <laughs> well, who would be? I, I think it's fascinating. that like, I lived here in the late 90s, but I lived in Menlo Park, and I didn't really come up to the San Francisco proper area unless I was coming up for a dinner, for work, or something like that. But that experience that you described, kind of mid-aughts, late-aughts, was very much the reality here. You just couldn't go out anywhere. Or, I take that back, if you did choose to go out, you had to be super planful because you couldn't get a cab back to where you were getting to. Forget about getting to the outer Richmond. Like, it's never going to happen. And that's dramatically different. Like, the San Francisco Bay Area is so much more accessible. I live in Marin. First of all, 20 years ago, I didn't know you could live in Marin and work in technology. Just forget about it. And now it's totally possible and accessible. One of the most fascinating topics that I think you've just brought up here is how you actually get around San Francisco and how much has changed over the course of the last couple of decades. Like That's a a really uh, poignant discussion. Well, how you get around impacts who you see and who you interact with and what you do and the variety of your experiences. I know I live right now uh, around Dolores Park. And I have a great community there. I think a huge number of my friends live in walking distance. You know, I have a young son. We can go to Dolores Park. It's, it's a wonderful place to live. But it feels hemmed in, honestly, um, having lived in other places. It's just, you talk about Marin, and it's partially because I grew up across the George Washington Bridge from Manhattan, which is the most heavily trafficked bridge, I believe, in the world even still. I will never live in Marin. And it's not because I don't love Marin. Marin's beautiful. I just can't cross a bridge to come into a city after how I grew up. We're always trying to run away from our childhoods. <laughs> yeah, fear of bridges. You know, so you're obviously a guy who thinks a lot about the future and the future in technology in particular, very thoughtful about it. What about the future of San Francisco? Paint a picture for our listeners what you think San Francisco will be like in, say, the next 10 to 25 years. 10 to 25 years is, is a long time. I, let me paint, paint you the picture I, I want to happen. I want way more density. You know, it was once described to me that San Francisco has this problem, which is half of the residents want San Francisco to be Paris, and half of the residents want San Francisco to be New York. And the ones who want San Francisco to be Paris see it as this beautiful thing that should be frozen in time. Mind you, that I would actually argue Paris is far more dense <laughs> than San Francisco is, and far taller than San Francisco is. But there's that kind of mindset. And then there's the New Yorker mindset, which is like, look, this is an incredible hub of commerce and innovation more people, the better, right? So I would love to see much more density. I was very sad to see a recent proposal that would have allowed a lot more housing, specifically along the BART line, get shot down, which would have been, I think, great. And then I would love to see much better transportation infrastructure. What I worry about, what I worry is that it is becoming a gilded city. It's so expensive that nothing interesting can really happen. And all the interesting stuff gets pushed out into the edge. Not unlike to some degree what's happened in Manhattan, you know, to a lesser extent, perhaps, because it's just so much more massive. That's the risk, though. You need density and you need diversity to create interesting landscapes. So you move out from the East Coast, you're transplanted, you show up in Menlo Park, you're now in San Francisco. 
you've got a very strong perspective about how the city needs to grow. Like, what do you do individually, personally? Do you consider running for city council? Do you think about being involved in politics? Like, what's the civic responsibility that you take on as an individual that lives in San Francisco? To be honest, it's limited. I live on a block I love. I love our neighbors. We have the coolest block. It's all these young families. There are kids everywhere. There's like borderline even community projects. It's a great block. But if you said, Sam, how do you get involved beyond the block? Look, I have a few friends who have made runs for public office and have done things here or there. I love supporting them. But it's really daunting to get involved in San Francisco politics, especially as a transplant. I've been here now eight years. And to some degree, I don't even feel like I've earned the right yet to have a voice, just given the pressure that is around these Describe issues. that pressure. What do you mean specifically by that? I think people are very angry at each other. <laughs> that's Yeah, that's, that's a fair statement. And I kind of understand why to a point. But there is this thing about, do you want to look to the past or do you want to look to the future? And what do you do with kind of the energy that's there right now? Um, And I I just don't think there are great answers. But I do know that there's a lot that's broken. Have you been at the receiving end of that anger ever? Not the way I've heard stories of other people is the honest answer. Good. We just had uh, your former colleague, Antonio Garcia Martinez, on the show. And he unfortunately went through a mugging experience. Not that that could be totally uncorrelated with with anger, but... You know, just talking about wealth disparity in the city and haves, have-nots. To be clear, I've been robbed many, many, many times. I I think I've been robbed. It just like rolls off the tongue. Oh, no. I've been – my garage has been emptied three times, right? Wow. I can't have packages delivered to my house at all. Like everything goes to the office because any package that sits on my stoop for more than five minutes will be stolen. But I guess I think that's part of the deal of living in a city, period. I don't think that that's that different in any major city. Do you feel um, the same way in Manhattan? Yeah. But again, I lived on 2nd and B and worked in Dumbo when it was not a safe neighborhood. So to me, it doesn't feel that foreign. So, you know, look, there's no getting around the fact that you're this very humble guy who comes here on our podcast and I'm meeting you for the first time and I've heard so much about you. But you are also one of the most powerful people in tech. Like you've created some very, very meaningful products and you know some of the most powerful people in tech. You work closely with uh, some of the top execs. What are some of the issues that you talk about as a group and as a community that relate to the Bay Area? Is there anything that's kind of like a, you know, hey, you know, we should get together and we want to work on this. Is there anything that you can think of from a civic perspective that you think about from that way? Look, I think there are things that everyone mostly agrees upon. Among the people that I spend time with, which is just a small segment of the world, the transportation problem is very obvious. Like, There's no one who says there isn't a transportation problem, right? The question is only how do you deal with what seems like a very intractable political set of issues when you actually get down to changing anything? Housing, I would argue, is also fairly uncontroversial among the people that I spend time talking to. Everyone believes there should be more housing and housing should be more affordable. I think a lot of the challenges come down to San Francisco, and I am not an expert in this, but San Francisco, as it is incorporated and set up, is a very tricky political beast. The way the mayoral ship is set up, the way the committees are set up around who has the power, it makes it really hard to move things forward in a lot of ways. And so I think that there are a lot of issues you can have legitimate disagreements about. Absolutely. And then there's a lot of things where you feel like basically everyone's on the same page, but you still can't get anything done. And I think it's depressing, to be honest. Yeah, that's unfortunate. We've talked a bit to previous guests about this, but Do you think, let's just say in a fictional world where you could appoint a mayor of San Francisco or a city council, are there people that you think specifically could fix the problem in or out of tech? I don't know, two or three people 
who you would say, I really wish they could just fix this. So there are people I respect deeply and I think could do amazing things for the city. I mean, one, and again, he might get mad at me for plugging him given what else I'm saying, but like, you know, I have a dear friend, Nick Josefowitz, who's on the BART board right now, who I think is going to be an incredible leader in the community over time. The real challenge, though, is you need so much time, right? and so much space to change anything that I I really worry it's not just about getting the right two, three people in. I think it's more about culture shift and changing the narrative about what we're trying to achieve and what we're willing to compromise on as a community, as a city, so that there can be long-term planning and long-term projects that get us to a much healthier place. I really don't think it's not about talent of leadership. I think it's about time and mentality and structure. How do you juxtapose that to the time that you spent in Manhattan? Because Manhattan had a maybe a point in time in history where it wasn't what it is today. And it went through a pretty big change, partially driven by government, partially driven by, I think, the acceptance of the people that lived in Manhattan of change needs to happen. Like, Do you see that at all? Any parallels to what's going on in San Francisco? Again, I have to preface by saying I'm obviously out of my depth. But I would say a few things I believe may be true. One is... Manhattan has a ridiculous turnover, right? It is not actually really that stable a population. And I actually think that makes things a lot easier. Again, I'm gonna, someone's going to correct me on this, but let's pretend the average person lives in Manhattan for about seven years in their life and then cycles out. I think that opportunity and that turnover just creates a framework that allows a lot more change a lot more quickly than cities that are, like San Francisco, you have long-term residents who have vested. Now, there, there are costs to having turnover. It's not that turnover is all good, but I think it makes change easier. I also believe, and again, out of my depth, that the city government of New York is just set up to be more nimble. A lot of the social services, as I understand it in San Francisco, the way they're provided, the way that they're budgeted, it makes it extremely hard to evolve them. Whereas I think in New York, there's just a lot more consolidated power, which means you can move more quickly. Given, you know, the way things are, the way they are structurally, I mean, are you, would you say, optimistic about the future of San Francisco, pessimistic or neutral? Maybe it's a little bit like technology, (laughs) which is, I think there's going to be some really great stuff and some really bad stuff. Um, I don't think it's all one-sided. It seems to me like the direction is moving that a lot of the most innovative artists, people, communities are moving out of San Francisco proper right now. There's the Marin contingent, you know, which is interesting and vibrant in its own way. It has its own crazy challenges. There's, you know, certainly a contingent moving across the bay into Oakland. And, you know, I'm, I find myself spending more time there than, than I had before. And then I think the really sad part of the people who leave the Bay Area entirely. I know people going up to Seattle. I know lots of people going up into the Pacific Northwest in a lot of areas who are just leaving. They, you know, they can do the type of work they want to do elsewhere, and they don't need the energy of this city. And I think that's the sad outcome. So am I optimistic? Am I pessimistic? I think a lot of things are going to change, and it probably will cycle. I think San Francisco might go through a few years that are sad. But again, I, I do think the only thing you can do when you see those types of things is focus on infrastructure, is my view. Stay here forever. Forever is a long time. I mean, I hope I'll consider myself a Bay Area resident or at least a, a Bay Area person for a very, 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 very long time. But I would also argue I've lived here now for over eight years, and and I kind of still consider myself a New Yorker too. So to me, I mean, I have an incredible affinity for the community here, for the people here. I think where else do you have the density of a certain type of technical and intellectual talent and knowledge 
come together that can do some amazing things and have the type of impact that you have in the Bay Area. I mean, you know, New York is a self-fulfilling prophecy for so many things. It's New York because it's New York. San Francisco, I believe, still is San Francisco because it's San Francisco. The Bay Area, from a technology perspective, draws incredible talent in and creates incredible culture and community around that space. But man, if it becomes an industry town and a limited one at that, that is just not living up to its potential. So we're just about at time. And this has been an awesome conversation. One of the questions we ask all of our guests is to think across the networks that you're on, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever, and tell us and our listeners a recommendation for one or two people or groups that you think they should be following right now. So I'm going to give you an answer that is so uncultured, but it's something I just like when you ask that question, it immediately comes to mind. I have to admit that I get a real juvenile joy from an Instagram account called Jerry of the Day. Do you know what Jerry of the Day is? No. Jerry of the Day is this wonderful account. Uh, I'm a big skier. I love skiing. And basically, it's short videos of people falling skiing <laughs> and hurting themselves. <laughs> and you never see them hurting themselves. You hope they're fine, you know, the whole nine yards. But it's kind of an updated, admittedly slightly more mean-spirited version of great old Warren Miller movies where they'd show people doing amazing tricks or, you know, skiing great lines. And then you kind of have, like, the silly interlude section of people falling. And I got to admit, although, again, it's not exactly the, the highest-minded part of me, that I get incredible joy from my Jerry of the Day dose every once in a while. But you got to be a whole person. You can't just be, like, super ethical and a genius technology person. you got to be a whole person. Got to have that trash humor on. Yeah, got to have got to have the hate follow, got to have the guilty pleasures, got to have all that stuff. I, I agree. And <laughs> so if you don't have that in your life, check out Jerry of the Day. <laughs> Awesome. That's fantastic. Sam, this was this was really great. What a free-flowing conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. You know, I really enjoy this interview with Sam in part because it presents such a counterpoint to a guest like Antonio or Keith and Nicole from Salon. You've been asking guests this season who they would vote for, or actually who they would just place as the mayor of San Francisco. And I left this conversation with Sam thinking, you know what, that's the kind of person that if I had a choice, I'd just place him as the mayor of San Francisco. And I would have confidence that his like undying optimism and kind of capable know-how would help us make things better here. In, in just this area of negativity, you almost want to get energy from people like Sam to present that counterpoint. Absolutely. And we appreciate all of you listening. If you liked this podcast and you haven't gone in and rated us five stars on the app that you found us in, please go do that. It'll help the podcast out a lot. On the next episode of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, we have part two of Matchmaking in Silicon Valley featuring Patty Stanger, who was the host of Bravo's Million Dollar Matchmaker.